not as bored because we're going to literally go every verse, uh, every word from James 2. Um, but I want to say before, before I pray again, I, I do want to say this. This, um, well, I guess speaking of preaching on Sundays, I, I would really love if we could, we could get together, sing some, some beautiful hymns, I could preach a sermon that makes you happy, and then we can all go to the top of the river together and eat some cornbread and coleslaw. Like That would be a good day for me. Um, however, what's on my heart this morning and where I felt the Spirit was directing me was James 2. And then what else was put on my heart I, I really led to a bit of a sleepless night last night. Um, and so I want to ask your permission this morning for you. Will you allow me to, to preach some things that, are, that may be difficult to hear? Uh, hopefully that it, you know, some of what is said today will be encouraging and empowering. Uh, but some of what's said today might also bring about conviction. And uh, the Lord has a heavy foot, and if He kicks you in the chest, typically you feel it. And, uh, and, and I'm not trying to, to come up here and be rude and be mean, I promise you. I want you to like me, really to a fault. I'm a people pleaser. And so I don't want to leave feeling like you hate me, but I know that might be the case for some, for some today. And so um, I'm willing if you are, you know. So I'll, I'll proceed. Uh, with that said, I'll, I'll pray, then we'll dive into, uh, into James 2. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity, Lord, to, um, God, to test my faith, to be obedient to you. Lord, I pray that, um, that you'll speak now and, and move me out of the way. God, would you fill me with love so that as I speak, your children will hear from you. Lord, I pray that, um, you know, that passion is not mistaken for aggression this morning. God, would you give me the discernment to know when to press in and the discernment to know when to relent. I pray I'll go as far as you allow me to go no further. And I pray above all things you're glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, James 2. Um, this is really my favorite way to, to preach is just look at a, uh, a scripture and then just focus on word for word, verse by verse. Um, so this is, this is kind of my, uh, my wheelhouse here. This is, I'm, I'm comfortable with this, with this style of, of, of teaching and preaching. But I will say that it means that we're going to make a pretty good uh, few stops along the way. We'll read a couple verses or a couple words, then we'll stop and unpack what it just said and then come back to the text. So James 2, verse 1. My brothers. All right, let's stop there. Okay? And I know what you're thinking. Get comfortable. We're going to stop every three words. Well, not every three, every four. But um, the second word here, my brothers. I want to focus on that word brothers because it's, we need to know who is James talking to. Who is he referring to? When he says brothers here, it's not, this isn't slang. This isn't, hey, my boys, my bros. This isn't that. This is brothers. It's really a, an affectionate term. So, who, so who's he referring to? Well, ultimately, we know that he's, he's referring to brothers and sisters. Perhaps your text says brothers and sisters. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ, those who believe in God and follow Jesus Christ. And also, if you go to, to chapter 1, verse 1, he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered around the nations. Okay? My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ... Don't show favoritism. Okay, we'll make one more stop and then we'll pick it up the pace. We know that in Acts 10 and Romans 2, Peter and Paul both make it clear that God does not show favoritism. It doesn't matter skin color, gender, you know, it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, God does not show favoritism, that all of his love for everyone is, is the same. It doesn't mean that, now we're all um, you know, equal, but equal doesn't mean the same. So there are certainly roles here and roles here that, that should... A man should have this, a woman should have this. Certainly, you can see that in Scripture as well. But ultimately, Peter and Paul are, uh, teach this message that God does not show favoritism. 
And now you have James, who is, by the way, the brother of Jesus, that we know that from Matthew 13, 55. But James is now saying, not only does God not show favoritism, but you should not show favoritism as well. So if Christ dwells in you, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, do not show favoritism. Now he's going to give an example of, of what to do and what not to do. Verse 2. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He has promised those who love him. I'll stop there for a second uh, because I've, I've seen verse 5 with my own eyes. Like I've seen people who literally live in, in, in a pile of trash, who live underneath a bridge where the city's trash is brought underneath this bridge into this space. I've seen families who live there, scavengers who live there, uh, parents who are raising their children, there's syringes all over the ground, so watch where you step. And this is in the Philippines. I've seen places like this in, in, in Africa and Europe as well, but specifically in the Philippines, I've seen this where people who seem to have nothing, they're at ground zero of life, seem to have a measure of faith that I don't find in a lot of believers here. And we have plenty. We're so blessed. Again, it's all relative, but compared to, to the Philippines, I mean, my word, we, we are extremely blessed. And yet they'll have a measure of faith and a joy. Can't wait to hear the Word of God. Such a love for God, and they have really seemingly nothing else in life. And you know, we'll have most of the, you know, most everything we need, and then most of the stuff we want. And even that doesn't stir for some of us our affections for Jesus. And so I have absolutely seen the poor in the eyes of the world, rich in faith. Verse six. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you will become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so we talk about favoritism here. If you are not showing grace and mercy to people, then it doesn't matter how much you tithe, how often you go to the Philippines, your church attendance, uh, you're going to be held accountable for that. If you're not showing mercy to people, if you're not helping take care of, of the poor and needy. But one thing that I honestly do struggle with is how if you break one law, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. So I want to unpack this for a second, really before we get to the meat of our text. Because in, in, in our Western mindsets and in America, our culture, we don't really compare the sin of lying to the sin of committing an affair with your neighbor's spouse. Right? Like we would say, surely the affair was far worse than telling a little lie. But yet, the scripture would paint the opposite picture of that. Right? And so, coming to a rolling stop is not as wrong, it's not as bad as you know, drunk driving. Like we, we would argue that because we elevate sins. And so, what I'm struggling with is definitely not as bad as what you're dealing with. 
And I'm over here kind of dabbling in sin, but you're over here living in it. And so we elevate, we elevate our sins. And so if you just look at driving home today, if you drove home and you're going 10, 15 miles over the speed limit and you get pulled over and you try to make the case, well, you know, hey, I wasn't, uh, and I'm not really breaking the law. I mean, I'm not, I didn't murder anybody today. How do you think the police officer is going to receive that one? Oh, so you didn't steal anything? Okay, then you can continue to speed. No. So if you, if, you, if you break one law, if you roll through a stop sign, aren't, haven't you broken the law so now you're a lawbreaker? As petty as that may seem, aren't you now a lawbreaker? Well, yes. Right? You can get a ticket for that. Just the same way you can get a ticket for doing something that we would consider far worse. And so when we look at the Scripture, where James says, the same one who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So we can't say, well, I'm over here doing this. I'm committing adultery, but I'm not murdering anybody, so I guess my sin is safe. You know, hey, I'm going 10 miles over the speed limit, but nobody's around me, so I guess I'm safe. And James would say, no, 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 you break one law, you're guilty of breaking all of the law. And God's not going to favor you just because you claim to be you know, a Christian. It's not going to be favored. Now, there can be mercy for you, but there's repentance. We'll go to verse 14, get to the, to the, to the bulk of, uh, of our text today. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds... Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. I want to stop here for a second. With tomorrow being Halloween, we'll spend a little time talking about demons, just for a second. And there's actually another passage coming up. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in a couple minutes. But if, if we ask the question, who in here um, would, would admit to having uh, a demonic faith? I doubt very seriously anybody would raise their hand and say, I do, I do, and I'm proud of it. I have a demonic faith. So what, is, what does this mean? What is James implying here? Well, James is saying, if you believe in God, if you make this boast, well, I believe in the Lord. I believe that God is one. But that's not leading to a transformed life or a renewed way of thinking. If it's not leading to any action, James is saying you have a demonic faith. Your faith in God is no different than, than the demons. And they believe in God and they shudder. So a demon might have more respect and more reverence for the Lord than you. And so James is going to say, to claim you have faith and it's not leading to you doing anything, you're not moved in the Spirit to do anything for the kingdom. You're not moved in the Spirit to verbally proclaim the gospel. You're not moved in the Spirit to help and take care of, of, of the poor or the rich. Then you may have a demonic faith. Let's keep going. Because it doesn't really get any nicer though. But verse 20, You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging 
to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Uh, this passage about Rahab uh, and, and the spies, that's found in Joshua 2. But I want to go back one verse to verse 24 and expand on this just a little bit. Because James just said, I don't know if you heard it, but James just said, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Well, if you're familiar with the Bible and the writings of Paul, Paul says in Romans 5 and Ephesians 2 that we're justified through faith. Paul goes so far as to say, Paul's over here saying we're justified by faith alone, no, by grace alone, through faith alone. Like, that's it. We're justified by God alone, faith in God alone. And Paul goes on to say not by works so that you can't boast about it. So you can't boast about uh, how high tithe checks you write or, or your trips to the Philippines or how, much, how often you work at Ladle of Love. You can't boast in that. You can fast every single day if you want somehow and still be alive. But you can fast you know, six days a week and read devotions every day, read the entire Bible every day, and you can't boast that that's what saved you. You're saved by grace alone through faith, and this is a gift of God. It's not of your own efforts, and you can't boast about what you've done for the kingdom. You can't float some resume out there that God's going to be impressed with, that now He must save you. You can't do that. So justified by faith alone. And then here's James saying, hey, you're, you're not justified by faith alone, but also works. Doesn't that sound like they're opposite? Faith alone, and over here, you're not justified merely by faith, but also by what you do. And I don't believe the Bible contradicts itself. I don't. I don't believe it's filled with discrepancies. And these two seem to be doing this. And so what, how then, how then can they mesh? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's a good question. Because the Scripture is pretty clear that, that good works, that, that deeds, these actions, should flow naturally from the life of a believer. And not even that they should, that they do. That good works, taking care of the poor, heck, taking care of the rich, sharing the gospel with people, right, to verbally uh, profess the gospel, to verbally proclaim it, and to also to be rich in good deeds. These things happen naturally from the life of a believer. You should be able to tell, as Jesus says, a tree by the fruit it bears. And so if I claim that I love the Lord, but I'm scared to death, or I, I refuse to, to verbally speak the gospel, I refuse to engage and help the poor or the marginalized, I refuse to enter another context, see how I might advance the kingdom there, if, if, that's, if, I'm, if I refuse to do those things, how can I say the love of God is in me? How can you say the love of God is in you? And, and are Christians today, if good, if good works and, and deeds flow naturally from a believer, then, then my question for us to kind of chew on today and spend some time unpacking today is, are Christians obligated to be generous? Are you obligated, are you expected to be generous? With everything, with your time, your words, your witness, your money, your, your home, are you expected to be generous as a believer in Christ? I would argue yes, but also that we're moved to. You know, try to keep uh, an Auburn or Alabama fan, try to keep them silent and have them not talk about football when it's football season when their team wins. Try to, try to tell them, hey, don't, don't do that. Maybe you should, probably shouldn't be doing They will. You will naturally talk about things that you love. You'll naturally make much of the things that you love. Heck, you probably can't even eat at a good restaurant without going and telling somebody about how good the restaurant was. Right? But yet, you'll claim to be in love with the Lord and you'll never tell somebody about it. I don't know how that happens. It may be that we have a demonic faith. Our belief in God leads to nothing. We just believe He's there. And we come to church hoping that He takes notice, 
and hoping that something bad doesn't happen to us, that we can somehow earn this. And so are we obligated? Yes. Are we expected? Yes. But we're also moved to do those things. We delight in giving and, and, and sharing. And so my question becomes, do we know what, what's expected of us? Because if you don't know what's expected of you as a believer, how would you ever live up to that expectation? And we oftentimes look at, at uh, the commands of, of Jesus and we just instantly assume that it's a bunch of do not do these things. It's like the Ten Commandments. Don't do this, don't do that, don't do, do, don't do this over here, and don't, don't go over there and do that either. And yet the commands of Christ are, are very life-giving. Throughout the whole Bible, and even Jesus says a couple of these, several of these, they, these one another's. And this will be a sermon, I'm sure, in the future. But Jesus constantly says, and the Bible constantly says, to love one another. These are the commands. Love one another, forgive one another, pray for one another, eat, break bread with one another, walk with one another, teach one another, give to one another, greet one another, live at peace with one another. These commands are life-giving. These, these are not necessarily restrictions. These are open-handed. Hey, life will, will work well for you if you can do these things, and they're life-giving. And these are the commands of Christ. And, and do we even know, like, do we know that? Do we know that's what's expected of us as we profess and we proclaim to be, to be Christians and Christ followers? You know, from Acts 19, here's another demon story for you. And again, it's Halloween, so we'll sprinkle some in. Acts 19, 13 through 16, we see that Sceva or Skeva, I don't know. I haven't finished seminary yet. We haven't gotten to this name. But it's uh, spelled S-C-E-V-A. I'll just go with Sceva. And if I'm wrong, you just please forgive me. Show me some grace. Sceva has seven sons, right? And, he's a, and he is a chief priest. And the seven sons, apparently they're having some success with this, but they're going around casting out demons as they hear that Paul is casting out demons and Paul's handkerchief is healing people and everything that Paul is proclaiming like is, is happening. Hey, you're not sick. Get up and you're not dead. Wake up and, and you're possessed with a demon. Come out of him. And everything that Paul's doing, there's all this power and authority coming out from him. And, and so these, these people see it. These sons see what Paul's doing. And they say, you know what, we'll go do the same thing. If Paul can do it, you know, why can't we? And so they, they go around casting out demons. And, they, and what they're saying is, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. All right, so that's what they're saying. And all this is found in Acts 19. And on one particular day, one particular occasion, uh, the demon does not flee, as apparently the demons had been to these, these seven sons. And in fact, when they, when they say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, come out of him, the demon answers him back. Okay, and the demon says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, Paul I'm familiar with, but who are you? Now think about how sobering of a question that is. Jesus I know, Paul I know, who are you? Right, so the sobering question for me becomes, am I, are we, are you? So worthless of a Christian that the enemy has no idea who you are and that you're no threat to the enemy? So when your feet hit the floor in the mornings, does the enemy, the devil, demons, does the enemy say, hey, don't, don't worry about this one. Don't tempt him. Don't tempt her. Don't bring up work. Don't bring up the past. Don't, don't even mention, hey, they go to church, but they're scared to death to share their faith with somebody. They won't invite anybody to their home. They won't invite anybody to church. They're not going to volunteer with anything at the church. Don't bring this one down. Now, sure, hey, they read, but we know their heart. Heart's far from the Lord. They go to church, but it doesn't really lead to anything. Don't waste your time with that one. Would the enemy say that of you? Or would the enemy say, as soon as your feet hit the floor in the mornings, bring this one down today? 
throw everything at him. Bring up the past. Tempt him with this. Tempt her with that. Bring this one down. Don't let them meet a stranger because they'll share the faith and invite them to church in a non-awkward way. Hey, don't, don't, let them, don't let them go to the church. They're going to speak life to everybody. Most people want to say things that are kind of cutting and rude. Not this one. Not him. Not her. Bring them down. They frustrate them. If they get to church, they're going to start speaking life to one another. Bring this one down. Jesus I know. Paul I know. But who are you? I hope that, that you individually, I hope myself, I hope we as a church, as a body of believers, man, I hope we are a threat to the enemy. Because that would mean that we're pursuing Christ and that we're bringing heaven to earth that we're sharing our faith, that we're being generous to people. If the devil has no concern for you, I'll be more fearful of that. If the devil's not thrown it off at all by the fact that we're going to leave here today and you're going to go out. Like I hope the devil thinks, holy smokes guys, we're in, like, we're in trouble today. He's, hey, he woke up again. Hey, he, she's, awake, she's awake again. Like I hope that we're a threat to the enemy. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? I hope we're a threat. So when we answer the questions of what's obligated you know, to us or, or what's expected of us as believers, and what's expected is that, again, we share our faith, we're generous, we love one another, forgive one another, pray with one another, eat, walk, give to, greet. Uh, we're at peace with one another. That's what's expected of us as believers. And we do that not only here, but everywhere that we go, to everyone that we meet. That's what's expected from a believer. All right, so now let's kind of derail just for a second. What's expected of us as a member of a church? Specifically, as a member of this church, do you know what's expected of you? And so if you're not a member here, you can ignore me for the next two and a half to three minutes. So I'll speak just for a second specifically to believers. Because at this church, like every, every Methodist church I've ever been a part of, membership is supposed to be taken seriously. We at least, we at least say that membership is, in, is serious. And so you enter into a covenant membership, and, and most people either meet with the pastor or they'll stand in front of the church and they agree to, they, take a, uh, they promise to, take a vow, they enter into a membership covenant where they say, I will support this church with my prayers, my presence, my gifts, my service. I believe witness is recently added to that. So I want to ask you, how are you doing with that? So we can start with prayers. I mean, we have on, on this staff, I mean, I can't remember if it was right before I moved here or right after I moved here, but we had a staff member whose son passed away. I hope you're praying for her. I hope you're still praying for her. I hope you prayed for her then. I hope you're praying for her now. We have another staff member who's battling cancer. I hope you pray for Harvey and Lana, their children and their grandchildren. I hope you pray for Russ and the choir. I hope you pray for our musicians here at this service and at the 8 o'clock service. I hope you're praying for each other. I hope you take the, the, from your, the insert from your bulletin home and, and, and labor in prayer for the members of the church and family members of this church and friends of this church who are, who are sick or are struggling with, with some fight. Maybe they're in the fight of their life with something. Like, I hope we're praying for each other, and you said you would. You promised you would. How are you doing with it? That you would support the body of Christ, this assembly of believers. You would pray for each other. What about your presence? What about physically being here? Now, we're here today. What about last Sunday? What about next Sunday? Again, you, if you're a member, you promised you'd be here. You stood before the whole church and said, I'll be here. And today, we're going to hold you accountable to it. That's what we said we would do. Now, I understand, hey, I'm going to miss this Sunday, I'm going to be on vacation, or hey, there's a family emergency, and I understand that. Surely you know what I'm talking about. This habitual, I'll come to church, 
once a month, once every six or seven Sundays. As soon as I can fit it in, if I'm not too tired, I'll, I, you know, I'll make it to church. And, and don't bring it up, because if you bring it up to me that I don't come, then I'm really not going to come, and I'm, and I'm going to take my membership elsewhere. And that's kind of this, this, this fear, and that's, that should not be the culture here anymore. If it has been, it shouldn't be anymore. And I, and I hope that it's not the culture here. We have, I mean, there's a little over 800 members uh, on, in attendance here. And we'll average anywhere from 300 or plus on Sunday morning. So where are the other 500? The other 400, if 100 have already passed away, where, where are, where's our members? And again, you said you'd be here. Prayers, presents, gifts, you know, and, and that, you, that we, we would tithe here. We would give our money here. And we can certainly debate, you know, well, the Bible doesn't say I should give it to the church, I should give to the kingdom at large. Right, but, but you did stand here and said prayer, presence, gifts, and service here. And, and, and if we're all doing that, then that's, then, then, then that's great. And so do we know what's expected of us even as a, as a member here? And I want to say this next, this next part with as much love and as, and as gently as possible. If you are a member here, and you know, you know I, I, I don't come, you know, I, I don't... I don't want to tithe, I don't want to give, I don't want to, I don't want to volunteer, I don't want to serve at Ladle of Love, I don't want to come on Wednesday nights to small groups, I don't want to eat with the body of believers. If that's where you land, I, I really would, and I would say this as gently as possible, I would encourage you, maybe just remove your membership. You can still come to church here, but then if you remove your membership, then you can, without accountability and guilt freely, you can not come to church, not tithe, not volunteer, nothing will be expected of you. But to say I'm a member here and never associate with the body of Christ, that, that's, that's biblically wrong. What are we doing as covenant members? Covenant means I'm in. I'm not going anywhere. I'm in for as long as I'm here, you can count on me. Do we know what's expected of us as members? We'll begin to close with this. 1 John 3, 17-18 says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. You know, our, our life, uh, lives as Jesus followers, as Christians, should look radically different from, from our culture. We live in a culture that everything is about us. I mean, even pictures now aren't even called pictures, they're called selfies. Right? Like everything's about self. It's all about me. Everything is about me. Everything is about us. And yet the Christian life says, no, 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 it's about other people. It's about others. And following Christ, our life should look radically different from, from the cultures. And Jesus' life was spent in ministry towards other people. Last week, Harvey preached uh, on sowing generously. And, and, and so I want to end with some verses on just being generous. Just simple verses on, on being generous. Psalm 112.5 says, Good will come to him who is generous and lends freely who conducts his affairs with justice. Proverbs 22.9, A generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. 1 Timothy 6.18, which was the uh, words of grace this morning, Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And finally, 2 Corinthians 9.7 says, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Um, as we prepare to sing a, a closing song, the, my fear for sermons like this, messages like this, my fear is that we'll all leave hurt and angry, and we'll kind of leave feeling terrible. I never want you to leave feeling terrible. 
Okay, and I, the worst thing you could do right now is be like, well, hey, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some promise and I'm going to fulfill this. Or, here's, here's all my money. I don't, I don't want your money. I, mean, I want your heart. I don't, want, I don't care about that. I mean, Jesus got money from the mouth of a fish. I'm, I, don't want you to, I don't want you to sign some check. I don't care about it. I don't care. I really don't about, about finances. I don't want it. Again, God can get you know, coins from the mouth of a fish. So I'm not, we don't, I'm not, not asking for that. But my, my fear is that we'll leave today and we'll think, oh, you want me to read more? You want me to do this? Man, I, I want you to give your heart to Christ and live a life that's transformed and led by the Holy Spirit. I don't want you to do anything under compulsion. Like, I now better do this or God's going to break my legs. God's, gonna, you know, God's going to take me or God's going to make something bad happen to me. No, I, I want you to, to give not under compulsion. And you're free. I want your motivation for all that you do for Christ to be love. And I want you to delight what you do. Not some fear that God's going to break your legs and give you cancer if you don't serve Him. That's not the God we serve. And if you're in love, if you claim to be in love with Him, but you're not moved and there's no delight in what you're doing, your faith may be more of a demonic faith and it may not be relationship. And what, what I would love for you to have would be relationship with Him. Again, I don't want you to give or do anything under compulsion or reluctantly. For God loves a cheerful giver. Um, I'll, I'll say a prayer and then we can, we'll end with a, with a hymn and we'll get out of here. Let's pray. God, thank you for the freedom to serve you. God, thank you for uh, moving us to be generous with all that we have. God, thank you for loving us. Help us to love you and help us to love um, others. God, help us to, uh, to know what's expected of us as believers in you. God, as members of this church, God, help us to enter in with one another. God, enter into community and fellowship with one another. And I pray above all things you're glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.